You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. The supposed strongest argument against Catholicism. Welcome everyone to Polly Pat featuring Gary Machuda. Welcome Gary to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, Pat and I, we're really excited to have you on today. Uh, for our listeners, they may recognize your voice from when you tackled the Deuterocanon back in the spring. Yep. And um, there was a recent video released by Cameron Bertuzzi's channel, Capturing Christianity, where he interviewed Dr. Jerry Walls. And this is what he would say is the strongest argument against Catholicism, and it has to do with the papacy. And so I uh, definitely recommend people to watch that, um, and and we're going to give you our feedback and our commentary, because if someone poses a strong argument against Catholicism, we definitely want to <laughs> hear it, and then understand it, and then seek to find the truth and what was actually true. And so... Um, I have a few points here, but one to give you all the floor first and see if you had any preliminary remarks about the video and about that exchange that we saw on YouTube. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll just uh, say a few things, and then I want to make sure that Gary gets a chance to reintroduce himself to our to our listeners. Yes. Um, yeah, so so what do I have to say about it? Well, first off, I want to say that uh, Jerry Walls, he's a professional philosopher, you know, very smart guy. Um, so when somebody of, you know, of his caliber is, is posing an argument, we want to we want to pay attention to it, right? Because Walls is that that sort of guy that, uh, you know, he's a careful thinker. Um, so you can you can generally, um, I think, and safely assume that he's probably going to be able to present uh, a case if anybody can, you know, against against the Catholic faith. So I just want to acknowledge that. Uh, so he, he's got some good works out there in the in, in philosophy as well. And uh, Cameron, uh, I just want to acknowledge the what that I'm really liking a lot of the stuff that Cameron's doing. I mean, he's having a lot of different dialogues. He seems like a sincere seeker. Uh, he he's uh, he's been having um, uh, people like Jerry Walls on to present uh, arguments against Catholicism. But of course, he's been having. Uh, I think he's actually going to have Trent Horn on soon to present the counter case. And I do want to say that Trent did a very extensive rebuttal of this video himself. It's like over three hours long where he just goes bit by bit. So we should link to that too, because from my perspective, the, the papacy and history, that's not my specialty. You know, I'm, I'm a philosopher, so I, I, don't ha I, I will have the least to add to this conversation. So I'm going to do most of my talking now um, and, and then get out of the way. Uh, I guess the, the one thing I will say is from my own perspective, um, it's when I was investigating Christianity and Catholicism and Cameron hinted at this in the interview, um, there's, there is something very distinctive and defining about the papacy. Um, but it wasn't the only thing that made me Catholic. Um, it was a cumulative case for me. Uh, and recently on Gary's show, we talked about the cumulative case for Catholicism, like all the types of things, uh, the data points, the, the, the lines of evidence, the reasoning all sort of converge on Rome. I would argue, and I'm talking like the, the wide swath of human experience, everything from philosophical arguments for, for God to Eucharistic miracles to Marian apparitions, stuff that is explained very robustly and thoroughly by Catholicism, such that when I got to uh, the evidence for the papacy, um, I would say because of all the background cumulative weight I had in favor of Catholicism at that point, 
the evidence didn't need to have to be overwhelming, if that makes sense, right? And this is, this is a general way of reasoning. If you already have certain background considerations that are pointing strongly in favor of a certain hypothesis, I guess that, that lessens the amount of load that any one particular point has to carry by itself. And then once I uh, kind of paired that uh, with the sort of a priori desideratum that I think that we have with the papacy, it just seems like if God is going to reveal himself, um, it's, it's going to have to have something like uh, a buck stops here type of authority, right? Like that just seems like something that, that makes sense and, and might even be necessary when it comes to making sure that the flock uh, knows what is essential for salvation because of all the issues we know that surround sola scriptura. And that's, I do want to emphasize one thing that Trent Horn pointed out that is absolutely right. I think Walls is mistaken if he's comparing the evidence for the papacy to the evidence um, for the resurrection, because it's not like the only Protestant commitment is the resurrection and that to be Catholic, you need the resurrection then you need equal evidence for the papacy. That's wrong. That's obviously wrong. Um, the, the distinctive, it's true that the, the papacy is distinctive about Catholicism, but what's distinctive about Protestantism is sola scriptura. So if we're going to have a real apples to apples comparison, we should say, what has better evidence between sola scriptura and the papacy? Oh, that's a good point. And there, I think that this is just, this is just a no brainer. I think sola scriptura is completely internally incoherent. Um, and it, and it's not only not found in scripture, uh, it's, it's not found, uh, at any greater degree of evidence than the papacy in the early church. So I think if you, if you make the right comparisons, the papacy is the clear victor, both philosophically and historically, when you compare the right things, if you're, if you're, if you're looking at whether it's Catholicism or Protestantism, to compare it to the resurrection seems completely confused to me. That's not, that's not the appropriate distinctive thing. So those are just some of my initial remarks, but, uh, Gary, maybe yeah. you could uh, chime in here and, and introduce, reintroduce yourself, and then we could get okay. into it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm Gary Machuda. Um, my focus is really on deuterocanonical books, but I'm an apologist, so uh, you know, in some ways this is in my wheelhouse. Um, I, I'm the host of Hands-On Apologetics, and I have great guests on, like Eric and Pat. And uh, in fact, yeah, I got to have you both on pretty soon, too. Um, in fact, uh, yeah, I'll give you guys a shout out on today's show as well. Um, but anyway, yeah, this is this is a weird argument. I I'm, I told before we got together, I was telling Pat I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the logic of it's almost like two completely different arguments kind of mishmash together. Uh, like Pat, what you said about the, the his comparison with the resurrection for evidence of uh, the papacy now. Even defining what he means by that, that's a whole nother problem. And then he has um, a second argument that deals with the monarchical bishop of Rome. And apparently he believes that unless you can establish a monarchical, that is a kind of autonomous individual who has complete jurisdiction over a locality, unless you can establish that, then you don't have a pope because you don't have a bishop, and therefore the claims are gone. And, but but aside from that, even weirder is he, he says that his argument is that a consensus of Catholic scholars do not believe there was a bishop of Rome, you know, a monarchical bishop. Therefore, Catholicism is wrong because Vatican I defined that there was. I think, am I, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. because I'm still trying to grasp exactly what he's arguing. 
So basically, Vatican I is saying, like, Peter is the first pope, and there's an unbroken succession of bishops from then to the present day. And what he was arguing, what Jerry Walls is arguing, is that even Rome's own historians, like Eamon Duffy, yeah. uh, who is on the Pontifical Council, is now saying, apparently, I haven't looked into it myself, I haven't read his book, but that, no, like, the consensus of our Catholic historians is that Peter wasn't necessarily the first Pope and there wasn't this unbroken succession. Um, And really this monarchical Bishop doesn't appear until the late second century. And it was more of a collectivist leadership structure in Rome. Right. And, uh, and so he's Dr. Jerry Walls is saying, well, if your own historians are denying something that Vatican one assumed and build a doctrine on that, then if the, if it falls apart, then why would we need the papacy or why, you know, or yeah. there's no historical evidence anymore that this is like what Jesus established, which that is pretty earth shaking. If like, if it's true that, Oh man, like we thought that Jesus established Peter as the first Pope. And now, Oh no, like it wasn't developed till late second century. And now we're reading back into history is kind of, I guess what he's thinking there. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, uh, that seems like a, a glaring problem of uh, the fallacy of, to, of appealing to authority. Uh, if I'm correct, I mean, basically, even if we grant him the position that, yeah, a majority of Catholic scholars don't believe there was a monarchical bishop, even if that were true, it still doesn't prove that the papacy is wrong. It just proves that there is kind of an inner, uh, there's infighting within the Catholic Church. That's all it would, you know, between these two different views. Uh, it's not definitive. It seems like it, if anything, it points, like I said, to divisions. It'd be like saying, well, there's a, a majority of, of Christian scholars who deny uh, that Jesus re- was resurrected bodily. Well, that doesn't disprove the bodily resurrection. What it shows is that there's a kind of incoherence within uh, Christian scholarship if such a thing was the case, right? And I guess there lies, yeah, the reason why he compared it to the resurrection is because, like, well, with the bodily resurrection, we do have a consensus that that actually happened based on the evidence. But with the papacy, we don't have that same consensus. Is kind of what. Well, I would. Well, I would. I would push back on that. I mean, among historians, I don't think we would say that there's a consensus that the bodily resurrection happened. Right? There's a consensus (laughs) among certain data points that we then use to make an inference to the best explanation that the resurrection hypothesis is, is the most robust mm. and adequate hypothesis. So I would just be yeah. careful there. Um, and then two more distinctions I want to make. I think Trent's point this out as well, but it's, it's worth reiterating that uh, it is true what Gary said, right? This is not only an appeal to authority, but it's like an appeal to authority to an appeal to silence. So it's, 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 it's not, no, it's not, uh, you know, it's not no evidence, right? It's not, not an argument at all, but we have to just take these things into consideration that this isn't the strongest line of argument, but it's an appeal to authority, to an appeal to silence, to an undercutting rather than rebutting the theater. And that is very important, right? And here's the difference, right? An undercutting defeater is something where if you think you have justification for a certain belief, an undercutting defeater wants to undercut that justification and say, well, look, you actually don't have as much evidence or justification for that belief that you thought you had. Now, that belief might still be right. It might still be true, but it's trying to undercut your justification or support Mm. or warrant for it. Um, So whereas a rebutting defeater would say, no, this is wrong and here's why. And it tries to draw some type of contradiction or, or counter evidence or something like that. So 
it's important to get the conceptual clarity here to say like even if we grant the whole the whole sweep of his argument what does it what does it really prove well it would just give us an undercutting defeater and we could yeah. still have the papacy right that could still be true we just would would have to say well we just don't have the the, the same amount of warrant or evidence that we thought we had before and that's that's a significant thing. We have to keep that in mind. It's very different than a rebutting defeater, which would say, here's evidence uh, that the papacy is actually false, right? right. And, that is, and that is not presented. So I just want to try and, from the philosophical perspective, just give some conceptual clarity to what's actually uh, going on here. Right. It's even worse because it's an appeal to authority to appeal to authority to silence because he says these particular scholars says there's a consensus, and the consensus says – so it's even even more remote from <laughs> from that, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and the the fact of the matter is, you know, he when he looks at Vatican One, the definition doesn't specifically state exactly what was the relationship of the bishop to say the presbyters or anything like that. It just basically says that the primacy of Peter is passed on through succession through the bishop of Rome. Uh, so he's kind of reading in just because people might have different models about how the episcopacy may have looked maybe in the first century as opposed to the second, third, or fourth. Uh, different models doesn't mean uh, a denial of the papacy. It just means that our understanding of it, uh, yeah. you know, that wasn't defined. You know, it's still debatable. So, for example, maybe you could have a theory that Yes, Peter was the first pope, and then it got passed to Linus, and then um, Cletus and Clement, but like maybe they had auxiliary bishops too. So maybe there was like four bishops in Rome, but that doesn't prove that Peter's successor didn't have the primacy, primary role. Um, and I'm just making that up. I don't know if they had auxiliary bishops back then, but I'm just saying if there was a collectivist more leadership, but that wouldn't deny that there is a primary role with, a, with Peter's successor even if there were evidence for other, like we have that now, like I'm in Denver and we have an auxiliary bishop. Um, now there is only one bishop over this area that we appeal to at the end of the day, uh, which is nice, but the auxiliary bishop certainly helps out. And so you'd be like, wait, I thought you had a mono episcopal, but you have two bishops. And so it, it could be confusing if you want to make it confusing. Um, but I don't know. I guess what I struggle with in, in, in watching this video too, is just, he didn't present any evidence which wasn't his goal, I guess, because he was relying on Catholic scholars and their evidence that they've accumulated. But I kept thinking, well, what about First Clement? What about um, Irenaeus's list? He said he just dismissed it without actually giving evidence why Irenaeus's, like Saint Irenaeus, in one around 180 AD, gives a very specific list of the successors from Peter to his present day. And when I read, I actually read that this summer, and I was blown away. I was like, wow, this is pretty clear. And so, Gary, maybe you can help us out with showing what are the theories, if, if you know, of, like, how to dismiss Irenaeus's list, or, like, is that reliable? And, like, I don't know, like, because to me it's very clear, and I don't think that's so easily dismissed. Can, right. I, can I say one more, one more quick thing here? Um, so I think this is very important, because one thing that struck me, first of all, it is a very good rhetorical move, right? Just so from a dating, uh, from a debating perspective, we can show... Um, Hey, look, you know, even people who are in your camp, you know, like they're, they're saying this. So yeah. I want to acknowledge the rhetorical force there. It's good. But then one has to wonder, well, are they just like sitting in really deep cognitive dissonance? Because these people are all Catholics. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So, so what's going on? And Gary was hinting at that. Right. Um, they don't think that this refutes the papacy. They just think, well, our model or understanding of how the papacy developed might be a little bit different than some of the traditional beliefs on that. And that is not incompatible with Vatican I. That's just a different interpretation of Vatican I. And that got, I think, completely glossed over in Walls. And it seemed like Cameron, again, tried to push him on that a little bit. Like, why are these guys still Catholic, right? Like, that makes no sense. Like, it really really makes you wonder. It's like, if somebody, like, really was, like, you know, a Christian historian who had all this evidence against the resurrection, you would have to wonder, why on earth are they still a Christian, right? It's like, something, something seems to be missing here. So that was, that was, there was, that's, that was worth, uh, I think, highlighting or pointing out. There's a difference in the model or the development of the papacy, but they obviously still believe that there's warrant for the papacy that's compatible with how Vatican I should be read. And I'll let Gary get into that as well. The other thing I want to point out to your point, Eric, is, is yeah, if you're going to make an appeal to authority, and it's not, that's not like authority, appeals to authority like other fallacies are context relative, right? So we have to consider is the authority relevant, but then we want to know, well, why? is this consensus there? What is the evidence that's supporting it? Because we, as we know, the consensus can often be wrong, as it historically has been on many important issues. So when we say like, oh, there's a consensus among post-mortem appearances of Jesus of certain New Testament scholars, right? Well, why is that the case? Well, because it meets certain criteria, right? Independent attestation, eyewitness testimony. We want the reasons uh, for, for, uh, we want the deeper level arguments is what we want. So we don't want to just hear that this is what an authority believes. And this is what you're talking about, Eric. And this is where I think walls did not substantially engage, right? What is the, what is the evidence here on the ground? And somebody in the comment section did bring up Clement and he eventually just said he wasn't prepared to talk about it. But if you're going to be given an argument against the Pope, you better be, you better be ready to talk about this, right? Stuff, right? Cause this yeah. is the stuff that's up for debate. So I just wanted to just put all that out there. Now I'll, I'll punt to you, Gary. On, on yeah. You know, and it was a, a weird debating move that he made um, because what he would do is he'd make these assertions about the early church, but then when people would call him on it, then he would hide behind authority and say, Hey, I'm not a historian. I'm a philosopher. I'm just saying that the consensus of Catholic historians. And then, then he tries to pit, well, Catholic apologists are against their best, you know, leading scholars in the field and, did you notice that he kept hiding behind authority when uh, Cameron or other people would push back? But then when when he's presenting, then he's he's going to primary source material and things like that. Yeah, and that, that created so much confusion because yeah. then, okay, wait, are we appealing to the sources then? Because if we are, then you have to talk about Irenaeus and Ignatius of Antioch, which that whole thing was an argument from silence for sure, and Cameron yeah. even pointed that out. But which is not necessarily bad. Like I guess Cameron was saying, you can argue from that. It's just we got to recognize what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, even uh, he makes some weird statements. Like you'll say that Eno, you know, waited until page twenty-seven before he called into question the monarchical bishop in the first century. But Duffy, you know, right on page one, he immediately calls into question, you know, the thing, and he's trying to make this inference that there's this uh, progressive uh, denial of the, the Episcopate in Catholic historians. But if you look, and you can go on Amazon, by the way, I, I did this before the show, you know how they have free previews? You could look up Duffy's work and actually read page one, two, and three, I believe. 
And what you find is Duffy doesn't give any supporting evidence. He just goes through some later legends about the lives of the apostles. Then he just says that Irenaeus assumed that there was this succession. But there's no arguments. There's no evidence. And the reason why he starts it so early is because that's a one-volume history of the church. And if he started discussing this on page 27 of his book, he would be in the area of Constantine. So, you know, he makes these weird statements. But anyway, let's go back to um, the monarchical bishop and primary source material, because he also makes strange inferences. Like with Ignatius, he says, well, six letters, you can't stop talking about the bishops, but in Rome, he's utterly silent, right? And Trent Horn, I think, makes a really interesting observation because first that he points out that you would think the inference should go the other way. If everybody seems to have bishops, it would be very peculiar for Rome not to, you know, it'd be a peculiar yeah. absence. Uh, and he also points out that, you know, Ignatius is also silent about deacons, presbyters, and specific Christians in Rome. So are we to infer because he doesn't mention them that there weren't deacons, there weren't presbyters and, there weren't specific Christians in Rome. You know, it, it, it's kind yeah. of ridiculous. And he but, makes uh, a comment saying yeah. that Rome presides in charity over all the churches. Yeah. Which yeah, is absolutely. a bold statement that is, to me, is like a really good proof for the, the Rome's primacy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, another thing Trent argues, and I thought he really knocked it out of park in his rebel, uh, rebuttal, is he quotes Ignatius' letter to the Trillians. And I'm going to read it. It says, In like manner, let all reverence, all reverence the deacons as appointed of Jesus Christ, the bishop as Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the Father, and the presbyters as the Sanhedrin of God, and the assembly of the apostles. Apart from these, there is no church. So Trent points out that the bishop is uh, constitutive of there being a church, right? right? So there wouldn't be a church in Rome if there wasn't a bishop, according to Ignatius's own outlook. And that, I think, is, is a fantastic inference to make from that, and one that Walls, you know, seems to be totally oblivious of. Um, but he also, Walls also makes another weird inference. I'd I like to hear your take on this. But he said, he argues that yeah, there's development of, like, the resurrection. We have more understanding of implications, like the atonement and stuff later on. And then he goes to the Trinity. He says there's this brute fact of certain data that you develop from. And then he says, but if the papacy is a development, then there can't be a brute fact. And I think, and he takes from that that if these scholars are saying that the episcopacy developed over time, that the inference is that there wasn't a core historical fact of there being a bishop. When I think the inference actually runs the other way, it would, you would assume if there's development, then there must be a historical kernel to develop from. Right. Yeah, you're, you're right. I think, I think general, I was surprised at the direction of walls inferences um, on, an, on especially these two occasions. I mean, yes, the, the, the Ignatius one, I remember this was something that I, that I encountered when I was first considering Catholicism. And it just seems so obvious to me after Ignatius is talking about the importance of bishops in all the other letters that the omission of the bishop in Rome um, is not evidence that there isn't a bishop. 
but there's probably some other reason, whatever that is, that he isn't mentioning the bishop, you know? And no. I know that some people will say maybe it's for secrecy or protection. I don't know. I don't know what that reason is, but it would seem absurd to me that he would make it so clear how important uh, the bishop is in the hierarchy of the church and then heap all this praise upon Rome if there were, if there essentially were no church there, according to Ignatius. And Walls was just very, he was very somewhat condescending and dismisses of that. I remember in the interview um, that got brought up, I forget when, and he says, well, you know, uh, Catholics will, will, will say this. And he just kind of waved it away, but you can't wave that away. That seems like the far better inference to me, right? Yeah, that, right. That's the inference I made when I was kind of looking from the outside. That's, that seems like the obvious directions to go. So yeah, I just generally with you there, um, Gary, and I, I would just invite the listeners to think about it themselves, study the arguments themselves and see which way do you think the direct, the inference goes on these things. And I think at least on those two issues, definitely, definitely not in the way that, that Walls went. I found that very surprising. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. it was interesting with the um, development of doctrine piece. Uh, and, you know, Cameron did a good job of saying, hey, some Catholics would re- rebut saying, um, you know, it's kind of like it was in seed form and then developed later maybe into a tree. And that's how we, you know, and, and Jerry is familiar with that analogy. So he's like, yeah, that makes sense for the Trinity or the Incarnation where we have the basic claims right there from the beginning but those are conceptually challenging things to think about. So even today we're like thinking through these things and these mysteries, right? But the claim that Peter was the first Pope and that there was a succession, that's not conceptually challenging. That should just be there or it's not. And so he was saying, it just doesn't follow in his logic, I guess that it would take the form of development of doctrine because it's not conceptually challenging and that the basic claims of papacy are not clear from the outset, but the basic claims of Trinity and Incarnation were clear at the outset, but the implications need to be developed on later. And that was kind of his gist of like trying to get past like how maybe the papacy, like what we would say is that it developed over time. And he's like, no, you can't compare that to the Trinity. Those are two separate things. Right. Yeah, in fact, uh, here's something that I thought uh, I would tag team on Trent because I thought this was a a great opening just to show how organically, uh, you know, the uh, Mon Episcopate would would develop in the early church. Uh, For example, uh, let's go back to Ignatius' letter to the Trellins. He says that the bishop is as Jesus Christ and the presbyters are as the Sanhedrin of God. And that's a very interesting point he makes. Now, remember, he's from Antioch, so he's in the East very early on, uh, beginning of the second Christian century. When we look at the New Testament data, we see Peter being given the power to bind and loose in Matthew 16, 18, and also, or 19, and also all the apostles are given the authority to bind and loose, which are rabbinical terms. And it's weird that why would all 12 be given the same authority as Peter? You know, and that makes sense within the first century Jewish concept of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a governing body, and there were, each locality had its own Sanhedrin, and there would always be a leader or a pres- uh, president or a, a prince, a Nazi, who was the head of that particular body. And all these different bodies would uh, be able to be bound and loose, their decisions would be bound and loose by the Great Bet Din, which is the great synagogue in Jerusalem, which consisted of a bunch of elders 
which was leaded by a single rabbi, a rabban. Okay. And the rabban had authority to bind and loose the great bet then, and the great bet then, and the, the uh, rabbi would be able to bind and loose the decision of the other assemblies. So already in Judaism, you have this sense of collegiality, like we would say the presbyters, but over the presbyters, there would be a single leader, which would be the, the prince of the synagogue. And I think that's what Ignatius is kind of hinting at here. It's that, you know, in its seed form, it's coming out of uh, rabbinical Judaism, you know, that understanding of the Sanhedrin. But you can see where there's development needed, because as the church grows, it needs to define and delineate exactly what kind of authority does this prince of the the Sanhedrin or the synagogue have. And uh, I think, you know, that's really where the development comes from. So you might not see uh, a Mon Episcopal autocrat, you know, early on. It would be more in this Jewish context of ecclesiology with the leadership. And really, I, I think that goes throughout the whole church. But I guess Peter that, would be identified as like the prince of the apostles because he alone was given the keys of the kingdom. Yeah. And so he'd be kind of like the head over even the apostles, even though they all share that binding and loosing authority. Right. Exactly. Right. And and again, that's the idea of like maybe, you know, thinking of a different model that would and that would still be perfectly compatible with Vatican I, it would be something that the Catholic Church would predict successfully. Right. And I want to say, you know, before I said, you know, that there's this cumulative case for Catholicism, but there's also a cumulative case for the papacy, right? Mm. Um, in the sense that, yes, there's the historical evidence, and maybe you think there's some evidence, but maybe not enough uh, to establish the papacy outright. But what about, what about all the biblical evidence? Walls quickly hand wave that away and just as alternative explanations, but that's significant, right? Yeah. And then there is, as, as um, Gary's hinting at, and Brant Petrie has a great talk of this uh, on YouTube, the Jewish roots of the papacy, of what this would have meant um, in, a Jew, in, in a context of a first century Palestinian Jew. And that, I mean, that carries huge weight yes. over into the conversation. This is awesome. Yeah. In the, in the same sense that it does with the Eucharist, with Mary, and I think Brant Petrie is one of the great ones who, who examines this, but it's all these data points, again, that builds the cumulative case even just for the papacy. And I would argue also another data point would just be the endurance of the papacy. We still have a pope yeah. right here, right now, right? That is something that you would expect if Catholicism and the, and the papacy is, is true, right? So that itself is another weight in the scale. So for me, it's just, if you look at, you know, thinking to, like arguments like this, you always have a scale, right? Kind of for or against. Um, you know, whatever Wall's argument is from, from silence, it's just not a very heavy weight. And as you start stacking up all the weight on the other side, it, it, I think it severely depresses the scale in favor of the papacy. Biblical evidence, historical evidence, the Jewish roots, the endurance of the Catholic Church and the papacy. Um, and then you just put in all the other evidence that supports Catholic teaching, doctrine, miracles, philosophical arguments, and the scale and bottoms out as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, anybody can can zoom in, right, on one particular spot deep enough until it seems like, oh, maybe it's a little scan on evidence there. But it's really helpful to take a couple step back a couple steps back. This is something I've been been writing a lot of papers on and, you know, and not miss the forest for any one particular tree and say, well, what is the weight of the evidence overall? What, you know, if, if the papacy is true. Uh, might we expect certain things? Might we, might we be able to explain or accommodate certain things? It would be difficult uh, for a Protestant or an Eastern Orthodox 
to predict or explain or accommodate. And I think when, when you do that, I think it, I think that at the very least, that gives you a better way of, of parsing through this and looking at it uh, rather than just focusing on just one particular argument from authority to silence. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And the mono, so it'd it'd be interesting too. like, you can't imagine like if um, let's say if in America, the president all of a sudden became the Supreme emperor and there were no other branches of government or something, there would be a lot of backlash. There, there would be a lot of commentary. There would be an abundance of evidence that future generations would look and be like, that was a decisive change. Right. And I think, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, but I don't, and I'm not a historical scholar either, but you don't see that in the late second century of like this earth shattering event of like, all of a sudden there's this mono episcopate um, seizing power in Rome that's leading everything. No, like what you see is like, I, I do see it in the very beginnings of scripture and the earliest documents we have, like first Clement, even the letters of Ignatius. And then we see it just purported as well in Irenaeus's list. And so, but I don't see this, a, a lot of evidence from those, the first or second century about like, you know, all of a sudden the structure of the church in Rome changed. Yeah. Like that would be a huge thing if that were, were the yeah. case. Yeah. You know, uh, when it, when you're approaching the early church fathers, for some reason, and this is true even for some Catholic scholars, it's almost like, uh, okay, let's say Irenaeus says there's a bishop of Rome at, during his day. I'm just using it as an example. Um, but was the bishop of Rome there the day before he wrote the letter? Well, yeah, yes. obviously. <laughs> or was he there a couple of weeks before or a couple of months? This is kind of what you're getting at, exactly. too. It's like, well, you, I, I'm not saying it's going to be like an argument from of the beard, right? You know, that we could... Uh, show these discrete, different discrete things and deny the extremes. But, but history is like that. There's continuity to history. And like you said, when you make an innovation, there's pushback, right? Or at least you would have someone who would have to defend their position. Mm-hmm. So that's another telltale sign too. Why are you defending something if this was in perpetuity? Everybody accepted it, right? When you look at Irenaeus of Leon's list, he actually assumes that this is available evidence to everybody, and not only Rome, but all these other churches right. have lists of successions. And he doesn't see any kind of discontinuity, and he, he's, he's arguing uh, based on that assumption. He's not defending it, saying, you know, let me concoct something new to show that, no, there was a succession. Yeah. Yeah. yeah when I read that list this summer, I was blown away. I was like, this is so clear. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. And it's just so assumptive and just like, Everyone knows this, and just to make it blatantly obvious to you Gnostic heretics, like, here's, like, the list of succession. If your ideas would have come, like, if those were true ideas, we would have known about it because we're inheriting the succession to this day, this tradition, which is interesting that he's appealing to tradition and not just scripture when combating these heresies as well. And he even says it's necessary to be in accord with Rome. Like, it's necessary to be in union with Rome. Yeah. Um, Wow, I mean, just yes. like straight up says that. And this is early on. This is like around 180 AD. Yeah, right. And so, yeah. Wow. And that, so that's why I don't have a lot of respect for Edmund Duffy's comment that Irenaeus just assumes, you know, that there's this succession. It's like, no, he's banking on it. You know, he's, right. he said, we're, in, we're the, in the position of being able to provide a list for all the churches. 
But since, you know, that would take up way too much time in writing, I'm just going to focus on one. So, it's, you know, he says, I got the list. I got the evidence. It's not an assumption. Well, this is what, this is a side note, but this is what aggravates me about modern biblical scholarship is that they're like, oh, this doesn't fit into all, all the criteria that we literally just invented a century ago. Right. And it's like, you invented criteria and it doesn't meet your invented criteria? That doesn't, that's not history. That's, that's yeah. making stuff up and trying to justify things. It just really aggravates me. So scholars disagree about everything. And that's, that's why we don't believe in Sola Scriptura, where Luther's like, trust the scholars. It's like, no, they disagree about everything. You know, so if the Pope himself came out, though, and said, yeah, what we taught in the first two centuries was wrong, that would carry a lot more weight than, like, the consensus of scholars believe this now. Well, that, that would be a rebutting defeater, right? Yeah. That, would be re- that would be rebutting evidence. And, um, you know, Irenaeus is getting at something my friend uh, Tyler McNabb uh, mentioned he was recently on a podcast with with uh, Swan Sona. It's called Intellectual Conservatism with with Eric Yabara. Gary, I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you saw that. Oh one. yeah, uh, that was that was a good one. We should link to that one too. And McNabb is a religious epistemologist, and so um, epistemology is not my specialty. But he reminds us that that uh, epistemologically speaking, you know, um, if there's a long-standing tradition chances are you might be better off standing within that tradition when it comes to knowing certain true things, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the tradition may have memories within the tradition that as individuals here and now, we just, we just don't have. Right. Um, And that's something to to, to just keep in mind um, from an epistemological standpoint of, of, you know, a reason to value certain traditions. Um, And Irenaeus is kind of, is kind of just kind of pulling that move himself in a sense. Right. He's saying, well, look, you guys aren't in the tradition. Right. That's what he's saying. You aren't in the tradition. Um, if you if this was true, like we should we should have memories of this somewhere yeah. in the tradition. So there is a, there is a, a kind of more subtle but interesting epistemological move. And I would say Tyler McNabb is he is himself a convert to Protest, uh, to Catholicism. So that's one way that he, he likes to think about this, that there's epistemological value uh, of standing within the tradition of the Catholic Church. Um it, it just in virtue of it being such a robust tradition. Uh, that yeah. doesn't, that doesn't absolve you of having to roll up your sleeves and do the historical evidence and, and see if there's credence there, but it is something worth considering uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a saying, if you can't show it, you don't know it. And you could push that to an absurdity where uh, if there is no surviving document that mentions something, then it doesn't exist. And there are some people who are, critical enough to, to make that kind of assertion. And you kind of see that when, in regards to uh, Wall's treatment of uh, the development of the uh, monarchical bishop that, well, you know, we don't have evidence, so the silence shows this didn't exist here. And then it just kind of pops up in full form, you know, in the middle of the second century, with, like Eric said, with no questions asked, no, no uh, defense, nothing. Yeah, and which which would be yeah. surprising if it wasn't already true, right? Yeah. That's the point we're making. Like that would be very surprising that that would happen without, you know, without some outrage going on yeah. right. if that if that wasn't true. But it's a type of thing where it, yeah, it's just sort of there. It's it's perhaps more historically noticeable at that point. Doesn't I, I disagree with Walls that we don't have any evidence before that. I think we've we've highlighted some evidence that we think is quite significant. But it would certainly be surprising if boom, there it is. And yeah. people just go along with it, right? That's, yeah. 
we wouldn't expect that at all, right? No, right. but the fact that it's there, it's more noticeable. It does seem, as I think Eric and Gary are both hinting, that this is just just a more noticeable development of, of the kernel that, that was there from the beginning. And that's why we wouldn't expect a ton of outrage if that, if that was the case. And that's exactly what we see, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were some sharp people in the, the, um, the question forum. You know, uh, they pointed out, first, Clement talks about how the apostles laid down a law that, if, that they knew there would be contentious for the, contentions for the office of bishop. And so they yes. lay down the law that once one dies, another is to take their office. And uh, and again, you know, and then he, all of a sudden he retreats to, well, I'm not a historian, mm -hmm. you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm a philosopher, but the authorities yeah. say this. And First Clement is huge because it's first century. It's like 80, yeah. 80 before the book of Revelation was done, right. was written, you know, so... Yeah. Which, which uh, Adrian Fortescue, I don't know if you've ever read his book on... Um, the papacy, like uh, from the early church fathers, basically from first century to Council of Chalcedon, is written in the early 1900s. And he just points out with the letter of Clement, like, listen, most likely the Apostle John was still alive because the best evidence that we have is that he wrote the book of Revelation around 95 AD. Clement was written around 80 AD. And so you have this Bishop of Rome reaching outside of his supposed jurisdiction to Corinth and giving them very firm directions and acting as an authority figure. And so it's like he's acting in that way, but the Apostle John is still alive. And so you would expect if he didn't have that sort of primacy that the Apostle John would say something and act in that way. And then also it just shows his universal jurisdiction that he can reach outside his own diocese, let's say, and really have that firm hand there and so just the the very letter itself is proof of the petrine primacy there um, which i find pretty fascinating right and you know and trent horn points this out i thought of it too when i watched the video shepherd of hermas uh actually i got the reference for you vision two four three uh hermas uh, the old woman who's the church says to him, therefore shall you write two little books, send one to Clement and one to uh, Grapta. And then it says, Clement shall send it to the cities abroad because that is his duty. And this is an apostolic father written probably around the same time as Ignatius. Um, and here, notice Clement is said to have a specific duty to send letters to uh, cities abroad. So, wow. <laughs> you know, yeah, so I mean, it, it all, like uh, Pat was saying, it really does all fit into a coherent whole. If you put all the pieces together, we might not have all the pieces, but it's very easy to sit, to draw a line. And, uh, but like I said, it seemed like uh, Walls kept doing that where he would throw out certain things about, oh, well, you know, such and such said this, and it didn't say this and didn't say that. But then when he was called on it, then all of a sudden he backs up and hides behind authority. Right. Yeah. I wonder if an analogy might be something because you say pieces like a puzzle. Yeah. It's like we, I, I think we do have enough pieces of, of the puzzle that we can make out the image. I oh, think yeah. we do. But you could always point to one of the missing pieces and right. say, well, why don't we have this piece? Right. Yeah. So, so th that's, that's how I see it, honestly, like that. And that's when I was looking at Catholicism. I just said, yeah, we have given again the background evidence and the load, I think, of evidence we would need for me to affirm the papacy. There's enough pieces of the puzzle here that I feel quite confident. And inferring, yeah, the image here 
is an image of the papacy. And maybe we could disagree about how, how it emerged and the different the best model to to explain it. But it seems quite clear to me that that's how the pieces are arranged. And it's just not adequate to point to any missing piece here or there and say that that takes it down. It's not insignificant that there are pieces missing. Um, but, but again, are there enough pieces in place? And I think, yeah, yeah there definitely, definitely are. Yeah, it was Aristotle said that we must move from what is known to what is unknown, right? I mean, you can't start with the missing pieces. You've got to start with what you have on the table. And I think with the development of Doctrine PC brought up, he was conflating basically the office of Peter with the doctrine of papal infallibility. I think that is worthy of separating the two as far as like thinking about doctrines, because one is an office that of course, like it, it's a very clear succession, but like the effect that that office has and like as heresies arise and like as councils happen, it or as things uh, develop where yeah that's not even challenged till way later then of course you can have a doctrine like the doctrine of papal infallibility that is more clearly defined later on and that didn't change like that there was the office it just helped define like the job of the office or the role that that office has and and i think we can see all of that of course in seed form and even it's almost like you don't even have to say seed form because I think the New Testament and the the weight of the evidence is pretty clear. It looks like a pretty big bush, at least at the beginning, and then yeah. becomes a tree. Yeah. Yeah, again, it, like the inference should be if you have a bush that you, could, you should be infer there must be a seed. And certainly by the middle of the second Christian century, we have a lot of evidence, even, even Wall's uh, concedes that there was a, a yeah. Mon Episcopate. Well, then where did it come from? There has to be something before that from yeah. which it sprang. And he doesn't provide any answer. He just says, well, there just wasn't any kind of authority and it just generated out of nothing, like ex nihilo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Man. um, yeah, go ahead, Eric. Yep. I was just going to say, I, from this conversation, I just love being Catholic even more because it's a living thing. It's a living tradition. It's It came from Christ and is it's continually going. And like, what something I think about sometimes is like, you know, after I die and after generations pass, the Catholic Church will still be here. Like, And it was here before I was here and it's going to be here after because Jesus Christ himself established it and will be with her till the end of the age, you know? And right. being part of that living tradition, though, it's like, it's exciting. It's like, we're part of this story. And it's a shame that this thought or this, whatever is keeping Jerry from full communion of the Catholic Church is just, and it broke my heart when he was like, I wish you would let us have communion like we let our people have communion. I don't know if you, you saw that in the video as well. And it's like, well, didn't you read Ignatius's letters? Like, there's a reason why we can't. <laughs> give you communion because it's a sign and instrument. So it's a sign of our unity with the Bishop. And when you're not in union with the Bishop or especially the Bishop of Rome, um, then it, you'd be lying to take the Eucharist. That's always a confusing objection to me because like you're asking to lie to yourself. Like when you say amen and receive the Eucharist, you're saying, I affirm the teachings of the Catholic faith, right? right? So why would you why would you want us to let you lie to yourself? That seems extremely strange. Now, of course, we want you to partake in communion. We we, we pray for it. That's it's not like we're glad you're out of the club. It's a joke, right? We we want we want everybody to partake in, in the fullness of the truth. 
but you know, not not just yeah, just not just the the earliest um, you know condemnations of partaking of the Eucharist unworthily, but we just don't want you to lie to yourself, right? Like here's here are the boundaries. Here's orthodoxy. This is what it means to be Catholic. And when you when you're when you partake in communion, you are in communion with the church, right? Um, so it's a protection and it's a love for for them. It's a respect for them because they don't agree. We're not imposing it on them. So I just I, that that objection just kind of irks me. It just seems like a very I don't know, kind of it's almost bratty in a way. It's just, I don't know what else to make of it. Um, the other yeah, there was one other point I, I wanted to make about oh yeah, that's right, what you said. And I you know I don't want this to come off the wrong way. Maybe it will, but it's like. Um, after watching that, I mean, it's, it only increased my confidence in the Catholic faith. It's like, here's, you know, here's a smart guy, Jerry Walls, right? If, you know, he's a good philosopher. He's a good thinker. Let's see what he's got. And, and this is it. This is the, this is the strongest argument against Catholicism. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> what a relief, right? I mean, <laughs> come on. This is, yeah. yeah. I mean, and not to, not to downplay, like it, it is an argument. It does need to be addressed. Um, but again, I think when you roll up your sleeves and you look at the weight of the evidence, it's just very clear that this argument does not succeed. It does not go through. And the weight of the evidence is, is significantly, and especially if you compare the right things. If you compare not the papacy to the resurrection, that's the wrong comparison. But the papacy to sola scriptura, it's, an, it's a no-brainer. Right. It's a no brainer if you if you compare the right things in terms in terms of evidence. Yeah. You know, you guys will have to forgive me when I do my program. I, we end up at this nice point where we could stop. And then the, the guest makes some amazing point that's slightly off and we have to continue. But, Eric, you're genius. You're exactly you just came up with another great refutation. I did. Ignatius, <laughs> yeah. Ignatius of Antioch says that. Uh, you do not have a valid Eucharist unless it's celebrated by the bishop or somebody appointed by the bishop. Yep. If that is true, and there was no bishop of Rome, then apparently there wasn't any valid Eucharist in Rome. Yes. <laughs> so it's like, can we really believe Ignatius would believe that? Wouldn't that be mentioned in his letter? By the way, you guys really need a bishop so you could have a Eucharist. It's like right. the whole thing is just, it's all piecemeal. and. It, yes. it doesn't hold together. But I'm sorry. Right. I, you no, guys no, made some great. beautiful points on your communion. I hate to throw that in there, but no, it's awesome. I thought that was brilliant. Thank you. Well, I yeah. did, you know, we don't have to go over this because we're wrapping up here, but just to throw something out there, what would y'all say is the strongest argument against the Catholic Church if there is one? Like, what would be the strongest one you think? Um, and maybe we can talk about Pope Honorius a little bit just here at the end. <laughs> Because I think that's one of the stronger ones that I've come across. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it depends on category. What's the strongest argument historically? What's the strongest argument philosophically? Um, yeah, I would say historically, um, just some of the ambiguity of the, some of the popes and the councils, probably. Um, I think there's some weeds you need to get into there, like the one that, that you brought up. I think they can all be overcome. Um, but they at least make you think, uh, I think, I think some of them make you think harder than Jerry Wall's argument. I think that yeah. that is true. I think some of them make you think harder in Wall's argument. So I would say, I would say that, and maybe that might be a good segue to, to, if that's, if that's your point, Eric, you could just move into that. 
Yeah, Pope Honorius, the the claim is that, you know, he's a pope in the seven or 600s, and he wrote a letter that basically, and this is how the argument's framed, and we can, Gary, you can correct all my misinformation here, <laughs> but that he wrote a letter basically defending the monophysite heresy, and so then later on, a council condemned him as a heretic. So how can you claim that there's papal infallibility when it comes to faith and morals from the chair of Peter, when from the chair of Peter, Pope Honorius backed heresy and thus there's a contradiction and therefore the whole thing falls down and so what do you say to that gary <laughs> well uh okay uh really quick because we're almost out of time um yeah he wrote a, a letter to sergius i believe there were the question was really the monothelite uh, heresy whether christ had one heresy. or two wills and which is very subtle but very important because you get it wrong and your whole Christology falls apart and things like the atonement and stuff. But anyway, uh, there, there was this on getting very heated debate, which by the way, it is akin to the monophysite heresy. Um, so uh, the, Sergius asked Honorius, what should we do about this? Because people are saying that there's one will or one energy or two wills, two energies. And Honorius' response to him was basically just stop discussing everything. You know, don't allow either one or two to be expressed. And by doing that, you know, he did stop the controversy, but he also kind of loaned legitimacy to that Christ only has one will instead of two. And so that caused the monothelite heresy to flourish during when Sergius follows this advice from Honorius. So anyway, later on, later councils condemned Honorius as a heretic. And if you read the, the explanation of those condemnations, he was, he was condemned as a heretic, not in that he per, it positively taught monothelism, but that he allowed the monothelite heresy to continue without denying it. So he was kind of aiding and abetting the heresy. And in that sense, he was condemned along with the other people. Um, but the question of papal infallibility simply doesn't apply. If you look at Vatican I, the three conditions for an infallible decree doesn't, doesn't match up. Uh, it's, yes, it's not faith and morals, but he didn't make a definitive decision. He wasn't binding the entire church by it. And there's actually even question of whether or not Honorius actually did more or less espouse the monothelite position. He's very ambiguous about it. And like I said before the show, I think, if memory serves me correctly, I think he actually says, I don't wish to define anything, which I think wow. is a great defeater for so someone who says he defined monopolism. So, um, yeah. And the, yeah, and it's just very important um, when you're going to try and provide, yeah, like a rebutting defeater like this. So, so this would be a stronger argument if it went through than Walls, yeah. right? Um, but you have to you have to be very clear on what the Catholic Church actually teaches, what its claims yes. are, and what it predicts. Yeah. And that's the failure of this argument. It just it isn't taking into account what infallibility actually is as it's been defined. And as Gary pointed out, even even if we grant that this Pope was personally a heretic, it it doesn't impugn infallibility according to how the Church teaches it. Yes, right. And to wrap up, Gary, just want to hear your strongest argument against Catholicism and how you rebut it, if. And it, it can be one of the strongest ones, or maybe there isn't one. I mean, I, yeah. That, that's tough. You know, I'm kind of with Pat that there are a lot of uh, thorny issues that could be brought up that's very subtle 
And when you're in the weeds, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it might be difficult to discern one way or another. But the problem with that is once you get out of the weeds and you look at the bigger picture, everything kind of snaps into place. So yeah. it's it's more of an optical illusion than a really good argument, you know, because uh, they might get into the weeds on a particular issue. But the problem is, you know, like I said, once you kind of distance yourself and look at the the big picture, everything kind of snaps into place and coheres into a, a single whole. And that's what I love. It's a single whole. It's a story. It's, it's, it's so like to me when I look at history and I love looking at the history of the church and the development of these things, I just see the imprints of the Holy spirit guiding the church into all truth. And it's still here. And it's like out of all the churches, uh, amidst like the moral chaos of the 20th century, the Catholic church was firm on contraception, on these other things that every other denomination fell away from. So that's like, okay, they're holding on to something that was part of their inheritance. And, um, and they still are acting as if they have authority. And it's just like, it's because they do. And Christ is still with his church. And it's just such a shame when we focus on, or we let these smaller issues drive us away from the Eucharist at the end of the day. And so I pray for Jerry, pray for Cameron Bertuzzi, that they would come into full community Catholic church and that these intellectual hurdles that they're going through, that those can be demolished. And hopefully this can help that so that they can actually come and experience the glory of God in the Eucharist. Amen, brother. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks guys for being on the show. Any last comments? No, I just want to thank Gary again for, for being here. It's always a joy, Gary. Yes. So uh, before yeah. we go one last time, where can people find you and every, all the cool stuff you're doing? Great. Yeah. Well, you could go to handsonapologetics.com. That's my website. I'm the host of uh, Hands On Apologetics with, and Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And also, please, I just started a new YouTube channel. Please check it out. It's called The Apocrypha Apocalypse, and I'm uh, putting out a whole bunch of videos on the Old Testament canon. In fact, I just finished one that I think will be pretty explosive. It's about Luther's flip-flop on the canon. Oh, so, yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so just check it out on YouTube. Put down Apocrypha Apocalypse. You'll find Very it. Very cool. Yep. Thank you, Gary. Yes, thanks, right. Gary. Hey, thanks, guys. This was fun. Beloved, I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization 
And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.